All right, well, um, really it is from this passage that it's often been said that the relationship uh, between a Christian husband and his wife represents Christ's relationship to the church. You've probably heard that before. It may be true. But Paul's point here is that Christian marriage should conform to Christ's relationship to his church, uh, which is only possible when the husband and the wife uh, together live according to the scriptures. Both must come together in this uh, or else there's just struggle and, and I believe heartache. But the question is, what does that look like? How is it all accomplished realistically? How, did, how is it accomplished realistically? So let's look closer at the text. Uh, uh, in the passage itself, Paul prescribes, uh, first of all, the responsibility of the husband's love. That's verse 25, husbands love your wives. But he also talks about how the husband's love for his wife ought to be manifested, uh, how, what his love looks like in the marriage relationship. That's verse 26 and 27. So first, regarding the husband's love, uh, the husband is not commanded here to love his wife as much as Christ loved the church. Now, I've heard that uh, idea perpetuated by you know, many, many people in the church, uh, but it's not in the language itself that Paul uses, and neither is it possible. Neither is it possible. The text does not say, husbands, love your wives just as much as Christ loved the church. The text says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is, love them in the same way, in the same manner that Christ loved the church. And then Paul tells us what that love uh, looked like in this particular context, because there are more contexts to what a husband's love looks like. So it's not a matter of degree or how much Christ loved the church, but in what way, uh, in what manner he loved the church. It's not in Paul's language as far as the degree goes, um, and neither is it possible. You know, Jesus is infinite in his divine nature. Uh, his love is an everlasting love that uh, is also infinite in its quality, neither of which is possible for us. Uh, we know um, we're very familiar with our uh, finitude, and uh, being finite uh, can only provide what is what? Finite. Finite can only provide finite. We might be able to provide a great deal of love and perhaps a love that is of great quality, but neither can be infinite uh, in degree or quality. So the wife that expects her husband to love her as much as Christ loved the church is going to live in perpetual disappointment, okay? Uh, and besides, as uh, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers says, uh, it is not the husband's responsibility to make his wife happy. That is Jesus' responsibility. And uh, if it's your husband's responsibility, uh, your happiness and your sadness will be like a roller coaster throughout life, up and down, up and down, up and down. Because a flawed man will always produce flawed results. Right? It's just reality. So, biblically, the husband is to love his wife the way that Jesus loved the church. Now, love... <clears throat> I'm sure there's a thousand definitions for it, but when we look at love from the nature of God and the behavior of God, we find that love always seeks the ultimate good of the beloved. So the question is, in what way did Jesus seek the ultimate good of his beloved, 
which is the church. Paul says here that Jesus gave himself for her, which of course is a reference to the cross. Jesus gave himself, uh, his life for the atonement, forgiveness, salvation, justification, and glorification of the church. That is the church's ultimate good. That's our ultimate good. Um, That was the church's ultimate good. Now, Paul obviously is not saying that a husband uh, should go, likewise, and get himself crucified for his wife. Um, Most wives, uh, optimistically, would not appreciate that. Maybe some would. Uh, But uh, that's not what Paul is prescribing for the husband. Uh, He may expect, uh, he certainly does expect, husbands to be ready Uh, or willing to give their life, but that's not what he's calling husbands to do here. A husband's duty is to seek the ultimate good of his wife, as Jesus did for the church, and what that looks like is actually prescribed throughout the scriptures, okay, from Genesis chapter 2 until we get to um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. It begins by providing authority, which is headship, uh, provision, protection, Uh, uh, honor, uh, as Peter says, understanding. And then there's what Paul mentions here in verse 26 of Ephesians 5. He says, uh, first he's he's saying what Christ has done, and in like a manner the husband is to follow in his example. He says that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse her, that is the church, with the washing of the water by the word. Very interesting statement. Uh, we don't find it anyplace else, but I think we can, uh, we'll do our best to try to figure out what he's saying. The text says that Jesus did this for the church, but because Christian marriage is to be conformed to Christ's relationship to the church, in a similar way, the ministry, this ministry, falls to the husband. It falls to the husband. Just as Christ is the head of the church, Paul says the husband is head of the wife, both here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Just as Christ ministered his love to the church by means of the word of God, so too husbands should minister their love to their wives by means of the word of God. Uh, The implication from this passage, you know, really regarding the connection between Christ's headship and the husband's, it just can't be ignored. And the only way, as we've already talked about, for a marriage to conform to the image of Christ is by that marriage living according to the scriptures, which requires, according to this text, the husband's ministerial headship, okay, ministerial headship. Let's look at the verse some more. Um, The word that uh, is the Greek word hina, not that you care about the Greek word, but what we call it in in, uh, Greek grammar and stuff is the hina clause. It's the purpose clause, okay, the purpose clause. Uh, and it communicates intent and purpose. Oftentimes it would make more sense to us if it was translated so that or in order to. Okay, that would be helpful. Uh, In fact, the NASB at this point translates it so that, okay, prescribing intent or communicating intent. Jesus offered himself on the cross so that or in order that to sanctify and cleanse. So why did he die on the cross? To sanctify, to cleanse the church. And what was the cleansing agent that accomplished this? It's very clear, the word, the water of the word. 
okay? Uh, now, the sanctifying and the cleansing nature of the scriptures is found uh, throughout the scriptures, but nobody uh, really says it like Jesus. He said to his disciples in John 15, verse 3, uh, it's there at, uh, after the supper, Jesus is going to wash their feet. And you know the story. And he says to them, you are already clean. Why do you say that, Jesus? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Okay? You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So there we have the cleansing nature of the word. Again in John 17, 17, uh, where Jesus is praying to his Father. He said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So there we have from Jesus both the cleansing and the sanctifying nature of the word. The scriptures have this effect on those who believe and obey. Okay, they're not just hearers of the word, but they are doers, okay? Uh, so when the scriptures talk about cleansing and sanctification, we have to understand that, that two things are taught. Uh, there's an event is being taught and a process. Something that happened in the past, it's completed, it's done. And then this ongoing uh, process, this progressive thing. Uh, so the event regarding this cleansing and sanctification occurred the moment that someone believes on Christ for salvation. That's a past completing action. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified, it's done. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it because God declares the perfect righteousness of Jesus to us. That very second that we believe we're cleansed from all sin, we're forgiven, and then we're sanctified in the sense that we no longer belong to the world, but we belong to Christ. We've been separated from the world and joined uh, to Christ in, in a spiritual union. And, um, but then after the initial event of salvation, justification, there's the process of uh, sanctification that begins. How many guys, when you first came to Christ, you were still a dirtbag? Okay, so we're becoming less of a dirty dirt bag. Okay, we're becoming more and more like Christ. That's the process, okay? Where moment by moment in this life, as we yield in cooperation to God's grace, to God's word, to his instruction, we're progressively uh, being conformed into this moral image of Christ, his character. Now, obviously, the husband cannot die for the sins of his wife. But he is appointed by God to play a role in her progressive sanctification by the ministry of the word. In a similar way that a pastor has been appointed for the progressive sanctification of the congregation through the preaching of the word. It's, it's very similar. But there's a challenge here. How would a husband do this in the first century when he didn't own a copy of the scriptures. It's really easy for us to forget the historical context of the Bible and then read into it uh, all of the privilege that we have, okay? The context that we live in, okay? Um, the, the application 
of this particular passage had uh, to be impossible, uh, at the, had, rather, had to be possible at the time that Paul gave it. It had to have current application. And uh, that's something to consider. You know, the idea that Christian couples would sit down together in the first century and study the word together, it just wasn't possible. It wasn't possible, okay? Couples did not have a copy of the scriptures. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, churches at that time didn't even have a copy of the scriptures. Understand, when Ephesus received this letter from Paul, that was probably the only New Testament document that they had. Imagine how precious that would be. Only one copy in all of the world at that moment. What a privilege to, to be the first pastor to teach that letter to anybody. It's fresh off the market or the, the press, the Holy Spirit press, right? It's very sweet, okay? Uh, the first piece, the fragment of the new covenant. You know, the reality is most synagogues uh, that were outside of Israel didn't have a complete copy of the Old Testament. Typically, they had some of the law and some of the Psalms. That's what they had. And in fact, a complete New Testament copy of the scriptures wasn't compiled until much later, okay? Over 100 years later. That's pretty crazy to think. And uh, so, certainly wasn't found in the average home. Later on, wealthy people sometimes, but rarely, had portions of the New Testament. But they had to pay big money to have a scribe hand copy it. Okay, it's something. Um, and another challenge is that even if the scriptures were readily available when Paul wrote Ephesians, many, many people couldn't read. That's crazy. So studying the scriptures was not like it is today. What would happen is if they had a faithful pastor, he would teach the available scriptures to the church and then the fathers were responsible for implementing the faith and the principles of the word in their family life. Now think of this. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, which is probably the most descriptive um, Old Testament verse on child uh, training in the scriptures. Mod of those people didn't read and they didn't have the scriptures as far as individually, but the fathers were commanded to teach the scriptures to their children. How in the world does that happen? Well, in the law, the priests and the Levites were commanded to play that role of teacher to the community, okay? Malachi says, it's from the Levite that you seek knowledge. Uh, uh, Nehemiah was teaching that the Levites were reading from the law, the scriptures, okay, and then they were giving the sense, that is they were reading and interpreting the scriptures to the people, and they were helping them understand the reading, that is how to understand how to live according to it. So the fathers would listen to this, and then they would have to turn around, and they would have to teach that to their family, and then incorporate it in their daily lives. So the scriptures originally were learned through oral teaching only. That's something, okay? Uh, what the early church would often do is they would memorize portions of scripture uh, through song and by way of creeds. Song and creeds, okay? 
There's no way for the scriptures to be studied by the regular person in the church. They were rare, hand copied, and they were expensive. Uh, even with the invention of the printing press in the, about the middle of the 15th century, think of that, middle of the 15th century, the scriptures were not available to the average person for quite some time. Uh, still, the printed uh, copy of the Bible was expensive, it was uncommon. It wasn't until actually the modern era that the Bible was made available to the average person and found in the average home, and for a couple hundred years, you'd only find one Bible per home. What a precious uh, item in the home that was, yeah. So the application of Ephesians 5 had to be practical for those living at the time that Paul wrote. Couples couldn't wait 16 to 1,700 years before they had their own copy of the Scriptures to study. So the idea that Paul's original audience sat down with the Bible and studied it together is just ludicrous. And I think it would be irresponsible for us to assume that that's what they were doing, okay? The husband and father... As the head, he was and is the gatekeeper. He's the overseer, the protector, the provider. And I think, you know, you've probably heard it before, he's the priest of his home. I don't like that language. I like he's the pastor of his home. He's the shepherd. Okay, and, and the word shepherd means like nurturer. Nurturer. But there was a time when it also meant protector. And when you think of a shepherd, he didn't just nurture the flock. What did he do? He protected the flock. So I, I prefer he's the pastor of the home. And in the first century, he had to absorb as much as he could through the oral teaching of the word so that he could teach, reinforce, and apply it in his home. That's really the reality. He was to use the means that he had. If it was memorizing the scriptures through song, the best thing that he could do is sing those songs in his home. Make them a part of the family, okay? If it was memorizing creeds or catechisms for doctrinal truth, those things should be repeated in the home, okay? It's not hard for kids to memorize things. Uh, we found, I found that with my own kids. Um, we, we have a large portion of Colossians memorized, and then we have, recently we've done Romans 9, or Romans 12, 9 through 21, and Asher, uh, my six-year-old, he's got it down packed. And uh, he doesn't understand most of what's said in there, okay? Uh, well, that's not true. We have used it for devotions for a couple months now, but uh, there's words in there that he just has no concept, but he's memorized it. And as he matures in his mind and has that memorized, he's gonna know it. And he's gonna know that God has placed that in his life for the purpose of him walking in it. That's a good thing. It's, you know, the concept that the Psalms talks about, hiding the word in your heart, so I would not sin against you, O God. And uh, it's good stuff. So here in this section here, um, Paul's letter to, uh, about husbands, the husband was informed that as Christ is head of the church, a husband is head of his wife and home, as Christ loved and cherished the church, a husband is to love and cherish his wife, as Christ ministered the word to the church for her sanctification, a husband is to minister the word to his wife for her sanctification. And I would say, as Christ is the great pastor of the church, uh, the gospels say shepherd, but it's pastor, okay? The husband is the pastor 
of his home. Nothing has changed. But today, it's true. We have many great advantages over those of the first century, don't, don't we? With all that we have available. Um, we all have a copy of the scriptures. I don't know how many Bibles I own. That's a crazy. I have tons of them. Uh, all of which is still meant to uh, complement the oral teaching of the pastor. Uh, we have Bible software with countless resources. One of the largest uh, libraries in the world is on Logos Bible software. It's amazing. I don't use it because I'm not smart enough to use it. It's overwhelming. Uh, I use a basic one called uh, eSword. Um, for those who don't like the computer, we have books upon books of uh, Bible maps and charts and dictionaries and encyclopedias, books on manners and customs of, of the Bible uh, people, uh, all to aid our understanding of the scriptures. And we just have so much available to us to complement uh, husbands, our pastoral responsibility to those of our household. And uh, we might say, as Peter would say, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Uh, for the blessing of our home, for the glory of God. And so whatever you need to implement the principles of God's word in your home, uh, it's readily available. So I guess a, a question is, how do we do this practically? You know, do you buy a pulpit and preach to your wife in, the, in your living room? Uh, I hope not. I'm sure it's happened, though. Uh, somebody trying to figure this out. You know, Paul doesn't give us like point-by-point point instruction on how to teach the word in our homes. Uh, there are those that would tell you this is how you do it. Uh, and I always say, well, do you have a Bible verse for that? Uh, I, I can't think of one. I know that I am to communicate my word or the word to my kids and my wife. Uh, and some people think they have it all figured out uh, but there's nothing in scripture that gives a detailed outline of how that should look. But there's definitely guidelines, okay, guidelines for us. And with a little imagination and creativity, we can practice them in our homes. And I'm not creative. I don't have an imagination. And I feel like we're at least figuring this out. As far as the guidelines go, Acts 2.42 and verse 47 uh, it says the early church continued in, steadfastly continued in. It says the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, and praising God. The apostles taught this to the church. And then they passed this on to pastors to teach it to the church, who were then teaching the fathers to teach this to their families. Okay? These same things. Um, Family worship. Family worship. Now, uh, as I address some of these things, which I think are um, a good exhortation, it's good advice, I'm going to include all of family worship, not just fathers to the wives. Um, there's just so much overlap. I think it would be foolish not to address it. Uh, now, first, in Acts 2.42, the, the apostles' doctrine is mentioned first for emphasis. Always. Just like in Philippians 4, verse 8, truth is mentioned first for emphasis. Paul says, uh, whatever is true, whatever is you know, lovely of good report and these things, think on these things. Truth is mentioned first because truth, which is really what God says about something, is from his word. 
okay? And that's the doctrine. Doctrine is foundational. It's foundational to everything we do, everything we believe. So it must be primary in our pastoral ministry in the home. It's through doctrine that we discover who God is, what he's like in his character, what his attributes are, what his works are in creation and the world, the life of Christ. Uh, If we don't know God as the scriptures reveal him, we won't really know him. Uh, So doctrine is essential. It's also uh, through doctrine that we discover what what it is that we should believe. Okay, we don't just intuitively know everything to believe. And uh, it's also, it's through doctrine, uh, how it is that we should behave. We're talking now about God's will for our lives. So doctrine teaches everything regarding faith and conduct, life and godliness. If we don't know what God wants us to believe, we can't be saved, period. And if we don't know how God wants us to behave, we can't live for his glory and his approval. We just can't, so we need doctrine. But So how do we do this in our households? Now historically, classically, the church has used things like creeds and catechisms. Catechisms. Uh, they both consist of theology and doctrine, which I love, okay? Uh, they're both uh, structured and systematic, but for some people, they're boring, okay? How many guys have been catechized? You know, by through a catechism. You are being catechized right now, by the way, or we might say indoctrinated. It's really the same thing. To be catechized means to come under instruction, okay? To be indoctrinated means the same thing, okay? Uh, So we don't have any former Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, or Catholics in the room. Those are really the traditions that used catechisms. Some Baptist traditions did as well. So some people don't like them. Uh, They felt like they were abused when they were brought up that way. Uh, That may be the case, but I still believe they're useful for our learning. I enjoy uh, a lot of them, but certainly not all of them. Now, creeds are a statement of faith, a statement of faith, listing systematically what the Bible teaches about uh, God and the will of God. Uh, I think it's a good idea to kind of, uh, and I would say the word enjoy, enjoy a variety of creeds, starting with small ones and then moving to larger ones, okay? Uh, how many of you guys have the Apostles' Creed memorized? It's one of the earliest creeds in Christendom. Oh, it's a good creed. It's a good creed. Uh, it's short, it's to the point. And then there's the Athanasian Creed. Okay, it's a little bit longer, and it's specifically detailing the nature of the Trinity. It's very good for that. Uh, these are both very old creeds. They're both amazing. Uh, latter creeds expanded on the content of these creeds, but none of them improved on them. None of them. Okay, and when you read them, you'll go, yep, yep, that's what the, the scriptures teach. Yes, that's what I believe. That's in line with scripture. And they're just... Uh, fun little ways to learn. I use the word fun, but not everybody thinks that. But I think they're fun little ways to learn the truths of Scripture. Okay? Uh, So I would say start there and then move on. Catechisms, on the other hand, they teach the same thing as a creed, but they typically come in the form of questions and answers and then scriptural support. Have you guys ever seen a creed? Some of you? Like the... um, or a, a catechism, 
Okay, yeah. I like them. Uh, some are kid-friendly. Others are clearly meant for adults, like the Westminster Catechism. And, uh, and, but I think the thing that you have to be aware of with creeds and catechisms is that they're written from some theological perspective. Okay, so you'll, you'll get deep into the creed and then you'll go, what is that? And then you realize, oh, that's Presbyterian or that's very Lutheran or that's even Catholic. And uh, so what you do is you just, it's your document now. You just ignore it and then you move on, which I'm fine with. Um, you guys, I'm sure that with me, there's things that you go, yeah, no thanks, and then you, you toss it. Uh, I do that with documents all the time, other than the scriptures. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I'm actually in the middle of writing a catechism for my children, and it's one that I fully agree with. Because <laughs> it's from my perspective. But my goal is to make the creed, not the creed, but the catechism more engaging and useful for my children. Okay, so I want to catechize them without them knowing that they're being catechized. That's always the trick. And when I was coaching soccer to little kids, um, I wanted them to not realize that they were learning all the disciplines of soccer in, in, in these exercises that I was doing. They were having fun screaming and shouting and getting crazy, but the whole time they're getting good at dribbling and things like that. But as soon as you make it like, too structured and official, kids are like, I'm done with this. And uh, so anyway, I learned how to sneak in through the back door with that. But anyway, the nice thing about creeds and catechisms is they organize what the whole Bible teaches about a certain subject, a certain subject. So you don't have to search through all the scriptures to, to try to find something. It's there in the catechism with biblical references, and so it, it, sometimes it's like a, a quick reference guide to the scriptures as you're learning them. Of course, it doesn't replace reading the scriptures for oneself, it just complements it. Um, yeah, if, if, uh, if you're more ambitious, there's always a good theology book from a respected theologian. If you want one, I can give you names, okay? I love theology, um, yeah. The challenge here is just getting your household interested. Uh, I used to read theology all night and then get up and roof in the morning. Uh, and then I'd do that for a couple days and then crash. And I couldn't function and Shandy thought that I had something wrong with me. Uh, but I just was eating it up, studying the scriptures, studying theology. I would say the most friendly and engaging introduction to theology is a book by A.W. Tozer called Knowledge of the Holy. Okay, uh, it's short, it's informative, and it's deeply devotional, which very few uh, theologians can bring the two together. It's usually all intellectual or all devotional, but Tozer brings it together, and uh, you find yourself worshiping God because he knows everything, which I think is what theology should have always been. Uh, I think that book is great for couples, maybe some teenagers, but not for Children, okay? Another small book uh, written by Moody Publishers is What Christians Believe, okay? Uh, it covers topics like the origin of the Bible, God, sin, Christ, the new birth, salvation, grace, faith, heaven. Anyway, uh, this is a very small book. It's, it's to the point, it's informative, it's great for kids. It's great for kids. 
It's great for new believers. I like it because you can take it and you, you can have them read it and you can modify it. And if they're little, little ones, uh, you can just modify it as you go. It's very simple like that. So uh, those are some ideas. Uh, other creative ways to get the word in your home is various kinds of media. Now, with all of these things, I'm always leery about endorsing anything other than the scriptures. I'm always leery. The scripture are the only thing that are 100% um, true. But there are some things, resources that I, I really enjoy. Uh, I've talked about the word of promise before. Okay, the word of promise. It's a fully dramatized, word-for-word audio version of the New King James Version, same version that I teach out of, okay? Using Hollywood voices uh, and things like that. This is great for road trips. My kids love it. It's also, it's nice for if you're sitting around the home or you're getting settled in at night. It's word-for-word, fully dramatized, and some of it is crazy intense. How many of you guys have listened to it? Isaac, raise your hand. Okay, Isaac's listening to it. I encourage you to get it. If, if you're on uh, Audible, if you have Audible, you know how you get a free book every so often? This one's free. If you buy it, it's 100 bucks. So why not get it for free? It's amazing. You pop it in in the car, you can get it CD, or you can get it um, streaming on the app, whatever. It's amazing. It's really, really good. Uh, and then more recently, there's a series on the life of Christ called The Chosen. How many guys are uh, enjoying that? Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. It's actually an app. So you get the app on your phone, or I guess you can get apps on computers too. I just don't have any computers that I use. Isaac uses one. But, uh, and then you watch it through the app, and it's a series of the life of Christ. It's very, very good. Uh, I haven't seen all of them yet. Uh, but if there's a problem, you can always contact me, and then just like with some theologies, you can chew up some of the bad and throw it out. But uh, it's very, very good. There's also sermons and theological books on audio, many of which I enjoy. Uh, the funniest thing is when you get a book from a theologian named Norman Geisler, and the reader is a woman. That's always a little bit different, throws you off a bit. Um, and then of course, one of the most novel ideas is just the reading of the scriptures together and talking about it, getting a little old-fashioned on that. Uh, we do this almost every morning uh, in our home with the family, um, and it's something that we will always do. Uh, we've recently, I said, with Romans 12, we've moved on now. We're in the book of Philippians, and uh, I love the book of Philippians. It's short, it's sweet, uh, it's filled with great theology and Christian exhortation. Uh, it's just amazing. And uh, so anyway, during family worship, I do have the Nehemiah 8 uh, philosophy. I read the text, I give the sense, and then we talk about how to incorporate the word uh, in our lives and throughout our day. Okay, it's very simple. Uh, Isaac, how long do you think we have devotions for? 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. It's not very long. I try to keep it as engaging as possible with the kids, asking questions. Uh, John Wiley uses candy with his kids so that when they answer the Bible questions, he gives them candy. I'm not sure if that's ethical or not, but um, he always quotes the Psalms that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, but it's a way that he's gotten his kids engaged. And his kids know a lot of scripture. 
and it's fun to watch them. But that's one thing that he does. Nobody has to do that. Uh, that's why I love all the variety that we have in our church. There's just so many cool ways uh, to do this. And uh, whatever you can do to get the apostles' doctrine uh, into your home and then uh, living accordingly, uh, that's essential. Acts 2 also mentions fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer and praise. Now, breaking of bread, uh, we'll talk about that another time. Um, and then fellowship. I hope you're having fellowship in your home. Uh, but whatever you do, uh, there should be prayer and praise. Uh, every morning after our family worship, uh, our family devotions, we spend time in prayer and praise. Uh, typically, we sing after our devotional time. Now, this is something that has been a struggle for me because I'm not musical and I didn't grow up in a, a music family. Okay? So I've had to work really hard and I'm still working at incorporating this more and more because I do have the conviction from Colossians 3.16 to do this. I just, sometimes I don't know how to do it. And so um, it just feels awkward, I guess, for me. It's, it's never been a part of the culture of my home, but I have learned that the sooner you get something into the culture of your home, the easier it is, okay? So let me read you what Paul says to the Colossians. He says, and listen to how he says this, <clears throat> speaking to this first century audience. He says, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. How should we do that, Paul? Through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You catch that? How do you teach your kid the psalms? You sing them. How do you teach your kids the doctrines of the Bible? You sing them. You sing them. That's what, that was what they did back then. And I, I don't think that anything has changed as far as our obligation. This should still be happening, Colossians 3.16. And um, it should be communicated through oral teaching, uh, Bible reading, but also through singing, singing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So husbands, fathers, find songs that teach good theology to your kids. Incorporate them during family worship. Uh, as far as prayer is concerned, um, I hope that families are praying more often than just before their meals. We wanna be thankful for more than just our food, okay? Uh, we pray uh, at our family worship. Of course, we pray before our meals. Uh, I pray with all my kids before they go to bed. Uh, even when I'm out of town uh, or on a mission trip, I do my best, if I can, to call and pray with them. I love doing that. If I come home late and they're asleep, I sneak into the room, I lay hands on them, and I pray for them. Uh, it's just something we do. Sometimes what we do is we gather in uh, as much of a controlled circle as you can with six and eight-year-olds and stuff, and we pray to the person at our left hand. So the kids are learning to pray for one another as well. We've made prayer uh, a part of our family culture. And, uh, and then Shandy and I are trying to develop uh, new habits as far as praying for our kids individually together. Okay, together. And uh, you can't complain about more prayer, right? 
Um, what else? That's it. Fill your household with music and prayer. The benefit will be the glory of God and the overflow will be the likeness of your family into Christ. That's really the goal. Um, whatever you want to call it, family worship, devotions, do it. Uh, let me finish with this. What time is it? It's eight o'clock. Okay, a couple things. Um, Luke 6, 46 through 49, you can turn there if you want. Uh, it's when Jesus is giving the parable of the man who built his house upon the rock. And um, quite often in scripture, the concept of a home is not referring to a structure. It's referring to a family. I would say most often it's talking about a family. In this parable though, Jesus is talking about a structure, okay? It's meant to illustrate a person's life, but it can be uh, easily applied to the family. So listen to what Jesus said. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the streams beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. So Jesus says, he who hears my teaching and does them, he says, his life. But life incorporates marriage and children. He says that house will be like the house built on the rock that's not shaken by the storm to the ground. It will be shaken, right? But not to the ground. Our family needs to hear the word of Christ and with us, they need to practice the word of Christ. Not just out of, you know, just, just raw obedience to Jesus, not just that, but because we want our home, we want our family to love Christ the rest of their lives. Without it, without this constant uh, ministry of the word, our families will be extra vulnerable to the storms of life. You remember in Ephesians 4, 4 Paul says, you know, do not be carried about by various doctrines. The only way that we're not carried about is by our consistency in the word, knowing the word, so that we can recognize that stuff. Man, our families need this, okay? Now, real quick, the last thing in Ephesians 5 that needs to be mentioned, uh, and it's real brief here from verse 27, Paul says, uh, again, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Again, Paul uses the, uh, the Hena clause, uh, saying, you know, Jesus loved and gave himself for the church in order that, or in order to sanctify and cleanse her so that the church would be presentable on judgment day. Now, if we are going to be consistent with the text, the implication is that by a husband's ministry of the word, it will prepare his wife for the day she stands before Christ. Oh, the responsibility of headship. Man, Jesus 
uh, or just as Jesus is responsible for the sanctity of the church, husband is responsible for the sanctity of his home. I, I think it's intimidating. On judgment day, Jesus is going to evaluate the husband's ministry to his home. That's the nature of headship. So wives, encourage your husbands in their responsibility and get on board with his ministry. Get on board. After all, the section did begin with wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You see, when the responsibility of the wife and the responsibility of the husband complement one another, life turns out the way that Peter said. They get to enjoy being heirs of the grace of life together, 1 Peter 3, 7. God is glorified and the marriage is blessed. So work together as a couple, okay? Work together. Now, uh, when it comes uh, to examples of family worship and devotions. The elders, we've been rummaging around with some ideas and we've been thinking about videoing our fa- each of our families doing family worship, okay? Uh, this way, everyone would get to see a variety of ways to do it, okay? And not getting the idea that there has to be this cookie cutter thing. that Everybody has to do it the same way. Uh, if the scriptures were clear, we would say that, but they're not. Uh, hopefully, if, if we do this, it will provide some new ideas, okay, to other people. Um, hopefully, it'll inspire some people to continue what they're doing, or inspire people to start doing that, doing it that haven't. We want to encourage people. Uh, if it doesn't work out, filming it at their homes, maybe we'll just create a living room, or we do it at the kitchen table. We stuff our faces with food, and then we we stuff our faces with the Word of God. Uh, So however we can do that, we can do it here. Uh, I'll talk to him again and we'll get it figured out. But anyway, for now, I would say ask God for uh, creative and engaging ways to get the word of God into your home uh, as a regular routine and then enjoy the fruit of it. Let's go ahead and pray. You guys want to stand with me? Well, Father, we understand from the scriptures that um, you desire godly offspring. Uh, You desire couples to uh, conform uh, to the way that your relationship is with the church. You want all of these things, Lord, multi-generational faithfulness. And Lord, we want that heart and we want the grace and the skill to, to accomplish that, Lord, for your glory and for the, the good of our families. We, we want to hear that our great-grandchildren are walking with the Lord. And uh, so I just pray that as we talk about all of these things, uh, Lord, as with the rest of the instruction from your word that you would give us grace uh, to be creative, to be diligent, um, to be productive in this. And, um, and Lord, I pray for all of our families that those that we minister to as husbands, that their hearts would be soft, uh, 
that they would be um, moldable, uh, good recipients, Lord, of the word. And uh, so, yeah, just empower us to do that. Grant us grace. And so, Lord, we just thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.